for a geostationary satellite, uh, you've got the average build time of 24 to 36 months. And so by the time you make your filing, by the time it gets accepted into the ITU and it's published and you can see who else is around you, who else is in line in front of you, then you can figure out, well, gosh, am I going to be able to use my filing for what I want to do? Or is that person who's two or three years down the line from me, are they going to float in a satellite, bring into use their slot, and I can't use mine? So you have to make several filings to try and get access to a marketplace. So you've got huh. all of that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. But like I said, three-dimensional chess in the yeah, yeah. with the occasional flash of lightning showing where people are moving. Welcome back to another episode of the Cold Star Project, the uh, podcast and show about scaling uh, the unexpected challenges of scaling space companies. I'm here with Mr. Chris Stott. He is, uh, well, he has many roles. He's the chairman and CEO of the Mansat group of companies, which we're going to dig into a lot because that's frequencies and I know nothing about nothing when it comes to that. So you're going to educate us up. Uh, he's on the uh, International Space University Board of Directors, which is pretty impressive. And he's the chair emeritus of Space and Satellite Professionals International, which I had to uh, poke around and um, very reasonable rates. I'm, I'm considering joining that. It's not uh, $10,000 a year or something like that. So thanks for being here, Chris. Oh, well, Jason, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure oh. to be here. Uh, All right. Uh, yeah, let's let's talk. All right. Well, I think there's two sides to what you do. You've got a business side and you've got a philanthropy side, a giving side. And uh, I, I, I'm interested in exploring that because it's um, you see that going well together when uh, business is going well and um, the individual feels good about themselves and that kind of thing. And, and you seem to want to give back to the world. And, and uh, that pleases me a lot. So let's begin by defining satellite spectrum for our audience, because they're probably not going to be familiar with with that term and that is a big part about what Mansat uh, takes care of for your clients. Oh well, well thank you Jason and you know mm. and thank you all for about to put up with what I have to tell you about satellite yeah. spectrum. See we find it fascinating at Mansat. I might be Mansat the art of man and satellites. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been representing and working with the art of man communications commission under contract for about 20 years now and what we do in essence is help companies secure the spectrum that they need in order to be able to put a satellite or a spacecraft in space. Uh, you have a saying at Mansat, <clears throat> no spectrum, no satellite. <laughs> if you know spectrum, you know satellite. Ah. So <laughs> anything you put in space needs spectrum. And it's the first thing, hopefully, uh, that someone is looking at when they're looking at a space mission. Awesome. Well, communications is critical. And <laughs> if we have no uh, no band to communicate on, we got nothing, like you say. So mindful of security and compliance issues. I want to dig into this. And this stuff is on your website, but I don't think oh. people have gone there before uh, they listen to oh. us speak. And by <laughs> the world, matchat.com. I know. Uh, by having us explain it uh, here, when they do go to the website, they'll understand what all the words mean. So my question is, how did Mansat get the authority to mm -hmm. distribute satellite spectrum and from who? On behalf of the Art of Man, good question. Mm. So uh, you have to go back in time, a uh, good 25 or more years ago, uh, doing my master's degree at the International Space University, which I highly recommend, the uh, largest postgraduate uh, alumni group globally in the space industry. Fantastic for its education, its networking. Mm -hmm. And I'll put a pin in this for later, Jason, the SSPI, Space and Satellite Professionals International, they have a fantastic thing going on right now with ISU, which we can talk about later, maybe. Okay. No, but sitting there in class and uh, first, day of, first day of lectures and one of the professors gets up and he talks about the International Telecommunications Union 
and how it's a regulatory approach under this international treaty called the Radio Regulations, where every nation in the world can go and seek spectrum. To put anything in space from a space shuttle, a dragon capsule, all the way through to a satellite, broadcasting, high throughput satellites for internet, Sputnik, everything. Everything is based on radio spectrum. And the whole point of the ITU is to prevent harmful interference. So only governments can go to the ITU and make a request for spectrum. It's done on a first come, first served basis. You put in your allocation, you put in your request, and you, you try to get something called priority. You work through a seven year process. Some applications have slightly more, but normally seven years. And in that seven year period, you're trying to basically play three dimensional chess in the dark with the occasional flash of lightning to tell you what's going on. So, and what would happen is too, and after, this, after school, I was very fortunate and was very lucky uh, to be given my start in, the, in, in uh, the space industry by McDonnell Douglas and some incredible people there. And people I'd worked with over and worked for at the Kennedy Space Center, who's superb. And we were out there trying to sell Delta II launch vehicles. Hmm. And every time I would talk to a customer, when I was allowed to, I was a junior man on the totem pole, we'd always say, great, are you ready to buy my launch vehicle? It's only X amount of millions for eight and a half minutes worth of work. And they go, oh, Chris, we'd love to buy your launch vehicle. But the thing is, we don't have any spectrum. And until we get our spectrum license, we can't get financing for our satellite. And until we get the financing, we don't know which satellite we're gonna buy. So we don't know if we need your rocket yet. So again, it went back to that, in, that introduction at grad school and looking at all of how people you know, got access to spectrum. And this was just in the mid nineties when the telecoms industry was deregulating. Uh, Thomas Freeman's uh, globalized flat earth was coming around. And in that lecture at school, they talked about, at ISU, they talked about uh, Hong Kong mm. and Gibraltar and others and about how they were enabling international companies to get uh, more efficient access to spectrum in this globalized arena to go after global markets. And I thought, wait a minute, Hong Kong's an overseas territory. Gibraltar's an overseas territory. I'm originally from the Isle of Man. We're a crown dependency. We could do this too. And it's sort of a pecking order of things. It's a crown dependency. It's, we, it's, it's a, means our government predates Westminster. And we talk about the Isle of Man a bit later. It's an incredible place for space mm -hmm. business and space art. Um, so I went to the government and said, hey, I know, you know, you haven't done much in space, but let me tell you what the others are doing. Why don't we do this on the Isle of Man? And they were really good. And we sat down and we, dis we discussed it. We talked about it and they came back and said, yep, yeah, no, <laughs> we're not doing this. <laughs> I was kind of like, what? But they said, no. They said, our, our economy's thriving. We have less than 1% unemployment. We can see what you're doing, but we really don't want to increase the size of the civil service. Plus, we don't know enough about it. We don't want to put rev revenue and resources in there. Our revenue and resources is going to schools and hospitals and roads, as it should do. I'm like, fine. Went away, had a think, came back and said, well, how about we do it for you? We'll form a company. Uh, we'll take all of the risk. We'll carry professional indemnity insurance. We'll go out and find the customers. We'll pay for the whole thing. And I tell you what, as and as the relationship progressed, we'll even pay a license fee. Hmm. And that's what we did. So we ended up as Mansat, the Art of Man and Satellites. And we were able to address the market for the global uh, satellite community. And uh, Northern Sky Research, fantastic research company, market research, uh, arguably one of the best in the space industry. Hmm. Uh, they did a couple of studies on the ITU for us and came back and said, by the way, you do know you're now the largest 
commercial provider of satellite spectrum to the industry. And we didn't. Hmm. We were just busy doing our work, helping companies find a path through the regulatory process, get the spectrum they need in a fast and efficient way possible. And we did that building on what was happening in the Isle of Man too. Hmm. An incredible international uh, financial jurisdiction, top eight in the world by the OECD and the World Trade Organization for financial regulations, approved by the US Treasury, by the European Union and others. And what we did there is just as space was commercializing, we took that very cutting edge commercial practice and worked with the satellite companies and with the accounting firms, the major top four, the bank, banks and others on the Isle of Man and the international community in Manhattan and London and Singapore and the Netherlands and everywhere else and put it all together. And so we were able to make space companies more profitable, more efficient, stronger, right? I mean, this is our way of putting our shoulder to the wheel. We're only a tiny island. We couldn't have a NASA for ourselves. But what we could do is make those working in the space program stronger, more efficient, more profitable. Those revenues go back to the parent companies under safe harbor provisions, all done quite properly. And guess what? They make more profit, which means they pay more tax, which means mm -hmm. their shareholders do better. Literal widows and orphans. It is a very virtuous circle as far as we see it. So I bet you, Jason, you didn't know that was going to be that long an answer to that short question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right with in-depth answers, though. I like that. I prefer more content and deeper content than uh, than less and skimming the surface. So who is your uh, ideal kind of customer then? Who's your target market? And, and how does Satellite Spectrum get assigned to them? What does that process look like? Sure. Well, Satellite Spectrum in any nation in the world, 193 members of the ITU, the International mm -hmm. Telecommunications Union in Geneva. Any one of those nations can make a filing. Only about 77 have done so to date. So, you know, as a, com as a, as a company, so as a customer, as a company, you can pick any one of those nations to choose to apply for a satellite license through for your spectrum. And so uh, what we do at Mansat, and we do the same thing now in Iceland too. We have a, a same similar type of contract where we represent the Icelandic government. Sort of an expansion of our offering as well. And they're fantastic to work with too. Because every jurisdiction in the world, every country has, has its own pros, mm. like a menu, right? And you have a customer coming and saying, I really want to put geostationary satellite or satellites. I really want to put a remote sensing constellation. I want to fly something in deep space, out to Mars, the moon. I want to put a low Earth orbit constellation for communication satellites. And they can choose. They can choose which jurisdiction is best for their business mm. and is mo most likely to make them succeed. So the customers that we like to work with are the ones that really want to get to space, are the ones that will take an honest, open look at all of these different jurisdictions, and we'll always guide them too. I mean, sometimes we're not the best choice. And we openly admit that when we talk to people, we say, actually, for the project you're doing, you might want to be here in Washington doing this. Or you might want to be in Singapore doing that. Mm. By the way, the guys at the Federal Communications Commission, unsung heroes. They do so much with so little, they're amazing. Same with the team in Singapore and all these other countries that we work with. It's not so much a competitive environment as a cooperative environment. And so the idea is to get those companies to space as quickly as possible and to help them do so. Yeah. Right. This is really a tripwire thing, too, because you need it before you can move on to so many other things, right? Yeah. You're not going to pick a manufacturing or a launch vehicle 
uh, or go get financing without it. And uh, I, I find that very interesting. So well, when Jason, I've heard me, you yeah. might you might find there are some companies who've gone down a certain path yeah. and focused on purely the engineering of things. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you get the occasional panic phone call that says, oh my gosh, I didn't know I needed a license. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. like, yeah, space is the most regulated activity in all of human history. Mm. It's more regulated than the international traffic and arms regulations. It's more regulated than nuclear power. It's more regulated than almost anything you can possibly imagine, plus some, and rightly so, because you're talking about orbits, energies, spacecraft, uh, where accidents can occur and you want to prevent that. Uh, under the Outer Space Treaty, which is a twin to the, to the radio regulations in space, you're looking at a situation where nations who le uh, license and legalize the operation of a spacecraft carry international liability for the actions of that company. Right. So it's a big deal. And so, yeah, it, it's, no, it's fascinating. Yeah, so no spectrum, no satellite. Mm -hmm. But if you know spectrum, you know satellite. And you'll find the ones who are successful built a proper foundation of getting their spectrum right because you get the spectrum in space and that's like one half of the coin which i should have had a coin uh, you have <laughs> one half of the coin right to get the spectrum in space so you're going to make an application at the itu mm -hmm. you go through your uh, advanced publication information you put your information in you've then got a call uh, it gets published uh at the itu you've then got to go through a system of coordination and i'm condensing about seven years of work if not mm -hmm. if not more uh, all the way through, and you've got to then design, you know, your footprint. And here's the other part of this. You get your spectrum in space, that's only half of the equation. You've then got to get landing rights on the Earth. Just because you're flying in space and sending a signal down doesn't mean you get permission to use it. Hmm. You have to get permission from any and every country you're landing a signal in to legitimately operate a business under their laws and regulations. After all, it's their country. You can't just show up and compete with a local telecoms provider and say, oh, well, hey, I've got a satellite. doesn't work that way. And again, all about prevention of harmful interference, uh, World Trade Organization and others get involved. It's fascinating. Hmm. I think it's a $400 billion industry in space. It does sound like there's a lot of potential landmines out there, Chris, uh, <laughs> or space mines, I guess. You need a really good person there. on wow. space. Yeah. 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 Wow. So... Seven years. Um, sure. Is that like the, the total time before someone who has gone from application to, to, to being allowed to launch? Uh, or the, can they launch sooner and there's, there's just a continuation of that process where they need to continue filing things or something while their bird is flying? Oh, my gosh. Loaded question, Jason. Yes. <laughs> yes and yes and no and no and yes and no. And no. <laughs> so on average, you're looking at a, for a geostationary satellite. Uh, you've got the average build time of 24 to 36 months. Mm -hmm. And so by the time you make your filing, by the time it gets accepted into the ITU and it's published and you can see who else is around you, who else is in line in front of you or next to you, right? Mm -hmm. Then you can figure out, well, gosh, am I going to be able to use my filing for what I want to do? Or is that person who's two or three years down the line from me, are they going to float in a satellite, bring into use their slot, and I can't use mine? Mm -hmm. So you have to make several filings to try and get access to a marketplace. So you've got huh. all of that, right? Oh, yeah. But like I said, three-dimensional chess in the yeah, yeah. with the occasional flash of lightning showing where people are moving. And then you've got to be building your satellite. So your, you know, your chief technology officer and your teams and your financiers are saying, right, what kind of antenna am I building? You know, what kind of footprint? And then in that time, your market can change. So say you were, you were going to focus on uh, one part of South America, and then that has an economic problem, and then you have to focus on the other. You have to change your beams. You have to 
do you want to go for a high throughput satellite or a very high throughput satellite? It's just pure digital shunting. You have spot beams and pencil beams. You've got to figure all of that out and then lock in your design and then stop building. And then you've got to launch and get there on time. Now, the way things work, some people will do it in three, four, five, six, seven years. If you miss your deadline for launch and you miss your seven years, if it's a problem with the launch vehicle, there are things you can do at the ITU to get a bit of an extension. Uh, but yeah, if you haven't done it, usually at the end of seven years, it's oof, like Cinderella. Now, for low Earth orbit, you usually got about a 20, 18 to 24 month, maybe 36 month, depending on what you're doing. Remote hmm. sensing is much different than trying to put up to a global communications constellation. You know, that SpaceX is doing with Starlink, uh, that uh, OneWeb version 1.0 was doing. Uh, LeoSat didn't make it. And we're talking companies that were, you know, and then are mm-hmm. in the billion dollar range of investments. I mean, it, it is space. It's not, you know, <laughs> this is the big boys stuff, especially on communications, where satellite communications provide the backbone for the communications network for the entire human race. You know, there's no tsunamis in space. Mm-hmm. There's no earthquakes in space. You know, the idea that, you know, you can actually have some kind of form of communications you can rely upon. Tons of disaster protocols through Geeks Without mm-hmm. Frontiers and also with the Global VSAT Forum. I've done amazing work with the major satellite operators, forward positioning equipment for disaster responses, as well as, my gosh, uh, cell phone connectivity. Last Mile is amazing. It's a huge business in parts mm-hmm. of Africa and Asia and growing even here in the States. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, 5G is going to be absolutely enormous because you have to connect those, all those new antennas somewhere, somehow. And it's faster and cheaper to connect them via satellite than it is to dig a trench in the ground and put cable fiber and power down. By the time you've done that, you're onto 6G, you know, city planning and all sorts of other things. It's fascinating. Sorry, I, I just love satellite right. and the spectrum part of it. Because the other thing, spectrum is a limited natural resource. Mm-hmm. It doesn't grow. We can make more efficient use of it through digital technologies. And when I started in the industry, we were still on analog. Now we've moved mm-hmm. to digital makes a big difference. But yeah, it's, it's a huge thing. So you do get people building a, a CubeSat and they get really shocked and surprised that they're not allowed to launch it because they haven't done any licensing. Hmm. It's like, no, first thing you should do is figure out what spectrum is available to you under the radio regulations, under your, your national uh, allocation tables. The Federal Communications Commission have a fantastic chart you can go look at here. It's hmm. really informative and they're there to help you. They don't want you going into a process which is going to, you know, tie your hands they want you mm-hmm. to succeed too everyone does it's just a little difficult you know when you've got civil military commercial and other things flying up there better be careful I, sorry yeah you I've have you have already to... changed my mind about this stuff uh, it is <laughs> it is a bigger world than i had imagined <laughs> so awesome. interesting i mean if you're if you're a small set manufacturer and you're looking mm-hmm. to do a ride along on somebody else's launch vehicle on that they're going to ask about this stuff before they let okay. you uh you put your equipment on board, and if you don't have it, that's going to be a very rude surprise. So, oh, absolutely, you're going to have your launch and operations licensing, yeah. your spectrum licensing. They'll want to see a copy, mm-hmm. and then whoever you're riding with will turn around and say, "Excuse me, mm-hmm. ah, you know that the subsystem you're using is going to interfere with my subsystem? Mm-hmm. Have we deconflicted that? I mean, harmful interference isn't just in satellite beams; it's within mm-hmm. devices too. Mm-hmm. It's a huge part of everything we do." And it, we got to this point because the mistakes were made in the past. This isn't a whole bunch of regulations for the sake of regulation. Trust me, mm-hmm. not at all. Oh, by the way, every four years, this has all changed too. We have the World Radio Conference. It just happened mm-hmm. in Egypt, yep. six-week yep. conference. 
back in November 19. Well, four weeks and two weeks, one week after. So I, I did a quick Make Space Boring episode about it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, awesome. So folks can oh, go yeah. listen to that after. Maybe I'll link in uh, the description. Cool. And then absolutely and vital, if someone's wanting to put something in space, is also this regional preparatory mission, national and regional mm -hmm. preparatory missions. So if you're going to do something new in space, right, and you want to make sure that the spectrum is there or can be talked about, you need to go talk to those various law firms and your regulators mm. to say, look, I need my application included in this, please. And you'd be amazed. I mean, things get done. It's fantastic. Hmm. So would you, do you have a kind of a rule of thumb or an estimate as to how much time you at Mansat save a, a client company or organization uh, compared to them trying to wade in and do this stuff themselves? Oh, wow. It's yeah. going to be different every time, but. Yeah, no, no absolutely. Because sometimes you, we, we work with the yeah. most great teams of these massive satellite operators who know the system like the back of their hand and we're there to support them and what they're doing. And other times mm -hmm. we'll do the whole outsourced function. We'll actually train people. We'll provide an outsource to them. Mm -hmm. So it's actually sometimes as a startup, cheaper to hire us in, quicker, faster, better, cheaper than it is for us to train their people than for them to try and learn on the way. The way mm -hmm. Jason, the way I always say this is, um, it's like Monopoly. Uh, Jason, have you played Monopoly? Sure. Right, me too. <laughs> did, you, did you ever, did you read the rules before you played it or as you were playing it? Uh, probably a bit of both. Yes, right. <laughs> I do tend to skim through things before I jump into them, but yeah. Well, see, that, well that's yeah. good. That's the way to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, and the same thing with space and regulation and the idea that, you know, if you have someone who knows the rules before you start playing the game, you can save not just time, you can save your entire project and mm. company from failure. Sadly, we have seen some companies out there who didn't do this mm. and, you know, multi-billion dollar investments lost. Fascinating stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's big stakes that, that uh, we're playing for here. So tell us about, like, I found this other website. You've got the Mansat website, but there's also spaceisle.com. And, and I was curious when I saw that, I was like, huh, what was the intention of having a different website? And then I thought, well, are they just serving clients on the Isle of Man? And we've answered that question. <laughs> it's worldwide. Uh, so what was the intention of having a different website for that? No, well, thank you. No, good question. And spaceisle.com, S-P-A-C-E-I-L-I-S-L-E. I'm dyslexic. Spaceisle.com, right? Um, no, because what we found was when we were going out and talking to customers, please come to the Isle of Man and, and work with us. And by the way, the Isle of Man is home to the largest single concentration of space and satellite companies uh, for, for any one of the larger uh, financial jurisdictions. I mean, we have over 53 companies there at the moment doing everything from manufacturing for the space station, uh, optics, uh, all sorts of other unique things are being made on the island, all the way through to procuring launch vehicles, satellites, insuring them, leasing them, getting spectrum from all over the world. And none of them come to the Isle of Man because it's beautiful, and it is beautiful. You've seen it in movies, just not known as the Isle of Man. Surrounded by castles and greenery, it's gorgeous incredible people, a beautiful place. A government is the oldest continuous parliamentary de uh, democracy in the world. It's an incredible place to come from and to go visit and to work from. But they only come to the island because they make more money. They make it more efficient. And what we realized was when we were talking to companies, they'd say, so how do I do this? How do I form a company? How, how do I, I, I'm going to do this unique thing on the Isle of Man financially for my, for my international group that I'm growing from a national to regional to global merger and acquisition player in space. And we said, okay, good point. Uh, at Mansa, we do spectrum. We don't have these answers. 
So we put a call out and government helped us, the Art of Man government helped us do this. And we came up with the concept of space art. The idea that we could, when we go to conferences, it wasn't just Mansat, it was mm. all of us. So you could have access to all of the different legal firms, accounting firms, banking firms, and others on the island to help you with everything from marketing all the way through to company formation in one place. And it could represent the art of man going forward. And we actually had a request from some of our larger customers to do that because they kept saying, Chris, this is great. This is really helping us. But could you please publicize what you do a bit better? I'm like, yeah, oops, sorry. Because uh, they said it would help them and their shareholders, you know, to say, look, this is why we went to the Isle of Man. This is a great place to be. Mm. And since then, we've had many uh, emulators, too. Other countries have done the same thing. I mean, we did this back in 2003. So we've actually had uh, you know, a good, good, good run there. And the, it's, the industry is fantastic. It's self-sustaining now. Uh, even this next two weeks, we're hoping to gain at least one more, if not two more companies coming in. And again, all using the Isle of Man in their unique way to make themselves stronger, to get a better return for their investors for their shareholders, which means they pay off their loans faster to the bank, mm. which means it's an economic virtuous circle as they themselves pay more tax in the countries where their homes are. Yeah, it's we're like a little tiny catalyst that makes, mm -hmm. space better. that makes space better, is what we like to think. Good deal. Well, I will go back and check that out again and uh, probably see it a little bit differently than I saw it the first time I no, went through it. He's explaining yeah, though, you're right, is, Jason. Yeah, yeah, it's these... Cool these these make uh, a change in perception here. This talk has already sent us off in a different direction than I thought we were going to go. Um, and that's that's kind of rare <laughs> for these interviews. Usually when I sit down with someone, I've got a pretty good idea of what we're going to uncover. But uh, this time's a little different. So let's talk about the ISU Board of Advisors. You're on that thing. Mm -hmm. um, I've you know talked with a lot of folks with with uh, ISU and Andy Aldrin who's um, partnered with them at uh, Florida Institute of Technology and that. Um, I just want to know what kind of experiences you've had there on that board of advisors. Uh, keeping in mind, obviously, privacy concerns or compliance issues <laughs> and that. Um, what what you've learned about being a part of a group like that, uh, leading, participating. What kind of things come up that uh, that maybe made you think, wow, I've got to tell other people about this sort of thing? Well, no, thank you, Jason. And the ISU, the International Space University, is an incredible institution. It is the postgraduate education center for the entire space industry. Whether you're in the human spaceflight side, the military side, the civil side, whether you're on the satellite side, it is sponsored by every major space agency in the world and by pretty much all the major space companies as well. It's an incredible resource for, for young, new and young executives, people, engineers, scientists. It's the only place we can do this three eyes, the international, interdisciplinary, and intercultural education. I went there back in 1995. It was founded in the mid 80s. First class went through, there was a test class, which is very cool actually, by the way. Mm. I think that was 1987, I want to say. Then 1980, oh no, maybe 87 was the first class. But you had people like Mike Massimino, Al Tadros, uh, David Newman, all the way through to astronauts who have flown through ISU and then come back to teach at ISU. It's the only place where you can go take someone like me who had a sort of more political regulatory background and business background and try to sort of teach me science and engineering. Even with a great thirst, you could learn so much. And the network is incredible. Hmm. And back in 2003, they very kindly asked me to join the board of trustees. And I came in there and I made some fantastic friends. And that's more of the governance uh, for the university. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, got various layers of governance, which is as it should mm -hmm. do. Right? The main campus is in Strasbourg, France. They competed for and won the campus there. But the university itself is a US 501c3. 
has been since the mid-80s in Boston, Massachusetts. The founding session was, created, was sponsored by Harvard and MIT with NASA and the European Space Agency. It is an incredible resource. You've got Andy Aldrin's Institute there at FIT, the Alden Institute for Space Entrepreneurship. Andy, if I got that slightly wrong, forgive me. And you've then also got uh, the International Institute of Space Commerce on the Isle of Man, another ISU Institute. Again, it's the idea of having these advanced campuses, these institutes to grow it out. You've got the Southern Hemisphere program uh, down in Adelaide. You've got the Space Studies program that goes, that moves around the world like a little mini Olympics every year. And you've got the master's program, which is headquartered and based on the main campus in Strasbourg, or one-year program. Plus, you have executive programs, one in Seattle, normally in November every year. It's been sold out the last couple of years. And you've got a fantastic one normally in May, end of April, beginning of May, uh, down in Strasbourg itself at the main campus. It's an incredible place. You meet everyone from everywhere in the space industry. And so, yeah, being on the board of trustees, it's you're looking at the finances, you're looking at new programs, you're supporting the executive it was fun. I was that, did that for 15 years, and I was on the executive committee for about 10 years for that one. And then uh, thought it was time to let others get in there and have fun and look around. And by the way, Audrey, Audrey Allison from uh, Boeing has just joined the board of advisors now. Sorry, board of trustees. Sorry, Audrey. Board of trustees right now. It's a fantastic addition to the team there. And you've got some incredible people on that board. Uh, again, representing different agencies, companies, countries, all with one goal, and that is postgraduate education. Board of Advisors is where they kind of take, take us old people, Jason, and kick us out for a while. And the let House us stay of Lords. Yeah, yeah, a little bit like that. And stay involved and, and, and work there. And I've got some great friends, Michael Potter, Jay Honeycutt, Mr. Abbey, are all up there as well. And it's, it's, it, everything works well. And the, the great thing is you've, you've got a, a feeder chain. You've, you've got, so mm. Peter Diamandis founded SEDS, Students for the Exploration Development of Space. Uh, well, actually, well, if you want to really want to do, go through this, Jason, you've got the, the, you've got the Challenger Centers. Mm -hmm. the largest uh, the largest uh, sort of middle school STEM education program in the United States I was fortunate to serve on their board for, for a while They're incredible wow. people they see over 400,000 children a year think of the legacy from Challenge mm -hmm. and the Columbia families came in on that too absolutely fantastic I mean pure training and, and, and on-ramp when, you, when you're down at middle school age and then you've got the Challenger sorry you've got Challenger and then that leads into the Conrad Spirit of Innovation Awards which are happening as we speak mm -hmm. Conrad's incredible, set up by Nancy Conrad and, and, and Pete Conrad's memory and sponsored by amazing companies from everyone from Lockheed to American Express to, and there you've got entrepreneurs at the high school age competing nationally and globally. They have to form a company, come up with an idea, come up with a product. It could be an energy, nutrition, space, aerospace, cybersecurity, fantastic. And then where do they go? Well, then they go to university, they go to college, they go to SEDS, students for the exploration development of space. I was a member of SEDS back in, back in the UK, down in Canterbury, when I started out in college there. And then where do you go from there? Well, then you start to look at the next level, and that's the International Space University. And what we've done is the space industry needs the very best men and women from everywhere and anywhere to pull this off. Space is the most difficult thing the human race has ever tried to do. And it's hard even on the easy days, and there are no easy days, right? The idea that it takes the very, very best of every scientist, engineer, journalist, doctor, businessman, lawyer, all of us to pull this off to the benefit of the entire human race. And where do you get your cadre from? Well, you go for them young, you use space and you pull them in. And that's what ISU is at the top level of that. And from ISU people go, uh, you've got an incredible employment rate, you know, over 90% employment rate back into the industry. 
either they go back and do a PhD or they've already done a PhD and they go work at Airbus or they go work at Mitsubishi or Boeing or Lockheed or any of these companies or any of these agencies. It's like finding a tribe. You know, mm -hmm. high school, you're like, I, yeah, I really like space, you know, and people look at you funny. Well, you, you don't like soccer, you like space. You know, like, yeah, I like space. Same at college sometimes, right? You had SEDS, but, you know, and then you got to ISU and you're like, oh, you could finally relax because everyone around you was just like you, really mm -hmm. into space. No matter what element and, you know, specialty you had, you could all come together and work together. And I've been on faculty there too uh, since 2003, which has been awesome. They've occasionally let me co-chair the business school and do some teaching. And I'm, I'm hoping to do some teaching on their new program. They have the ISP. Uh, this is the, uh, is it the International Space Program? It is the uh, Internet Space Program, the Innovative Space Program. Forgive me, it's just happened. I mean, literally in the last couple of days. So because of COVID and everything that's going on, normally they would have the Space Studies Program. And that had to be canceled this year. For, you know, normally have 120 students from around the world. All the different professors come in and they sit there and you teach for about 10 weeks. Five weeks of classroom and then five weeks of give or take of uh, visits to different industries and team design projects, real hands-on stuff where you're learning those three eyes. And the ISP has come out in response to this. So you can actually do everything online. It's a, it's a much shortened project. Uh, but if you are a member of the SSPI, and sometimes I stumble on this because for many years we were the Society of Space, Society of Satellite Professionals International, and about three or four years ago, we changed to Space and Satellite Professionals International. Mm. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke was our first ever chairman, uh, still chairman emeritus. This is fantastic. May he rest in peace. But he created this incredible thing along with people from the satellite communications industry. It was people from, you know, who were doing the first ever satellite news gathering who put it together. And they wanted to raise money for education. So we've been sponsoring students to go to SEDS. We've been sponsoring them to go to Challenger and Conrad. And we've been sponsoring them to go to ISU for many years. So if you're a member of the SSPI, which I think students, by the way, you get free membership. Come on, students. Uh, big hint. And that, I'll and link that, to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. And it is the largest professional networking association in mm. the world in the space industry. You can be anywhere from Tokyo to Rio to London to New York. And a couple of taps on the keyboard, and you could be meeting with all sorts of people in the space industry and satellite industry. And it's incredible. And all they do is fund, you have chapters everywhere, go check it out. They fund education, but more importantly, good professional networking, and you get half off. I know I sound like I'm selling Ginzu Nights. I don't mean to, but you get 50% off uh, this new ISP program at ISU this summer if you're a SSPI member. I mean, that is, it's really nice, mm -hmm. which means that you can actually, to your heart's content, delve into all of these different topics, these incredible teachers. And the thing about ISU and the faculty is, you have permanent faculty who are there all the time looking after their different disciplines, you know, science, engineering, business, law, etc. Amazing people. But when it comes to teaching, ISU pulls into the industry. So you're learning about, learning about launch vehicles and launch vehicle, the business of launch vehicles, launch vehicle contracting. And there in front of you is the head of contracting and sales for Ariana Space, for SpaceX. Uh, by the way, the head of you know, global sales, SpaceX, Jonathan Hoffeller. Wow, mm. ISU alumni. You've got the head, Steve Eisley from Virgin Orbit, ISU alumni. You've got the people from, uh, or you've got everyone you could have possibly want to meet in launch vehicles, and then satellite, and then human spaceflight, and then planetary remote sensing, and then moon, and Mars, and medicine, journalism, and everything, all that. And that's going to be online this summer, and I would highly mm. recommend it if you get a chance. It'd be a fantastic mm. program, and it works really well. And yeah. one of the things we did do is uh, Michael Potter, 
an incredible uh -huh. alumni as well. He was an alumni of the first ever program they did at, at MIT, the first ever SSP program. Uh, I got to know Michael on the board, an incredible business person. He did amazing things at Esprit Telecom and other places, Global Connect and, and more. And he started some scholarships, which we're very happy to support. The Alain Ramon Scholarship and the Kalpana Chihuahua Scholarship, both in memory of uh, two of the astronauts who we lost on uh, Columbia. And with the Alain Ramon, he has sent, I think, close to 60 Israeli students to ISU, which is tremendous. Mm -hmm. And with the Kalpana Chihuahua Scholarship, which is open to Indian women in, her, in our honor, <clears throat> we are getting close to, I think, our seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth huh. students to come to ISU. And so there are scholarships from all sorts of different places, different countries. Uh, you've got sponsorships from different companies, agencies. So check out ISU. It's an incredible network to have. But mm -hmm. also, I put it this way, if I ever have a question in the space industry and subject to export control and compliance mm -hmm. and everything else, and I don't know the answer, which happens a right. lot, <laughs> every day i will i will reach out to the network and say who, hmm. who can i talk to who can help me with this and you've got a community of people who will drop everything and help you it's incredible right. and it has helped the united states so much in space it's it's amazing you've had some incredible professors from the u.s from nasa from the various colleges all the way through to the various academies come teach it's an amazing resource and i, I with Andy's program at FIT, they're starting their online program too. Yeah. I would highly recommend it. This is Jason Gannigan from Cold Star Tech, and I'm excited to share with you a new offer from Cold Star that we are bringing out to help both space founders and venture capitalists who fund space companies. And it's on two levels. The lower level is a VC who is looking at possibly funding a space company, but they just don't get it. Right? And a lot of tech founders want to come out and create some sort of technical capability, but they do not understand business. And so you'll look and you'll go, where's the customer here? Where's the business model? And they'll go, huh? But I want to make rockets or something, right? And, and it's really cool. Well, that, as we know from the dot-com era, is not a viable business model. And so you bring us in. We've got great technical expertise on the space side. Folks who have done this sort of assessment before, like our technical engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, myself in the process engineering field, plenty of other people with brains to look at this problem so that you don't have to blow your brains out trying to figure out how to make this work. And on the company side, it's a benefit for them because we will show them the roadmap to how you're going to get funded, how, how you will want to fund them, what changes to make to get VCs excited about putting money in. And so that's good for you. Right? The second level is at a, a deeper and higher level at the same time. It is for venture capitalists who have uh, given a seed round to a company a space company, and that has gone on for a little while, six months, a year, something like that. And it is time, as uh, COVID has made it, to double down or get out. Those are pretty much the choices, right? It's time to invest further in a thing we already know, which seems to be the direction VCs are going in right now. Uh, they don't seem to want to look at new things uh, or, or stop, just kill the project. And so the good news is, in that situation, there's a lot more going on. There's more meat for Cold Star experts to get in and, and analyze, right? You're going to have processes in place, whether they know it or not. We'll be able to flowchart those and, and maybe accurately document them for the first time so we can get some kind of value chain going in the organization. We'll be able to test whether the leadership is the right group of people or whether you're missing something, the strategic direction, the business model, 
all this stuff. So if this sounds interesting to you, reach out to us. You can email me at jason at coldstartech.com or just connect with me and message me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, I am excited to talk to you. The, the kind of transformation that we're able to offer here is beyond anything you'll see out there. And as a VC, this will save you so much time and energy, right? Like if you're a VC and you've got 100 companies to look at, you've got three days a year <laughs> to, to look at each one maybe, right? That's not really good enough, is it? Wouldn't it be better to have uh, experienced expert space People who understand space, right, look at this investment and tell you, here's a grade, right? Here are several grade areas. Is this thing ready to pour gasoline on the fire or is it just going to go up in smoke? This is Jason Kanig from Cold Star Tech. Let's get back to the interview. We, we covered SSPI a little <laughs> bit um, and then it's, that it's, um, say that again? I said, I'm sorry, you can tell I'm in sales. I love the sound of my own voice. That's okay. <laughs> I, I want to hear. <laughs> I've learned a lot. And uh, I'm sure everyone listening and watching uh, has as well. So SSPI, mm -hmm. is uh, it, it's free for students. Um, I think it's $100 a year for individuals. And then there's corporate levels on that. Um, I, 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 I want to find out at what point do you believe uh, a space professional should consider that? Um, you know, is, oh, it, is it like you should always be in there mm -hmm. absolutely if you're <laughs> okay. students uh i mean if, if, yeah, you're teenager, free, so. yeah, if, you're, if you're a teenager if you're an mm -hmm. undergrad postgrad if you're just starting off in the industry yes absolutely so i mean it's that golden rule in life isn't it mm -hmm. uh, you don't if you don't ask you don't get and 99 percent of life is simply showing up mm -hmm. you would be amazed jason at how many people think oh i could never do that i'm an example of it i uh tiptoed around the space industry for about six years um, where I was, I had this limiting belief of, oh, I'm not a scientist and I can't compete with somebody with a Stanford degree in engineering or something like that. And uh, finally I got over it. And, and that's, that's what this show is all about is uh, reaching out and meeting people like yourself who I, w I personally would have been afraid to. And now it's funny because I have people who are afraid to talk to me messaging me hopefully you know i hope you'll accept this and you know can you help me connect with that person and yeah it is it is fun and networking is is um, easier than you might think so for for young people who are kind of putting up uh your elders on a pedestal maybe eh, join <laughs> probably join sspi and start connecting with a few people and you'll find them far less uh, mean and vicious than you might think far more friendly oh my gosh absolutely this is the yeah. most inclusive welcoming industry mm -hmm. we ever have yes and i agree we're also always always trying to hire bright people into the mm -hmm. industry no matter mm -hmm. what age religion or anything they're from right as long as they meet U.S. export control and have a green card in the mm -hmm. <laughs> By the way, it's quite funny accent. I am an American citizen, so that's all good. Uh -huh. I'm a Canadian. I, uh, oh, I came here 10 years ago, 11 years ago, and uh, yeah, I have my green card. And <laughs> so I, I know exactly what it's like to go through that, folks. So, so Jason, what got you into yeah. space? Uh, I had, and I've explained this um, on other episodes, so I'm sorry for boring people <laughs> with the same story if you've heard it, but uh, when I was a teenager, I had a kind of an idea of myself running an asteroid mining company, and I made the mistake of telling a few people, and I was told I was a lunatic, and you know, that's, no, that's fantasy, they told me. And uh, yeah, funny thing is, um, 
the interview that I did with Dan Faber, uh, who who ran DSI, yeah. just came out today, the day that we're uh, it's um, May 11th today, the day that we're doing this interview, and. Uh, so, so in 2014, I saw DSI and planetary resources and went, whoa, <laughs> you know, this this asteroid mining thing is actually approaching. Like it's, you know, it's a real deal here and people are putting money towards it. Uh, maybe I should get involved. Um, but I, I had that crippling, um, you know, imposter syndrome thing of, oh, I can't do that. I'm not a scientist and whatnot. But um, I reached out to the vice president of business development for planetary resources uh, and said, hey, can I interview you by phone privately? And mm -hmm. uh, and he let me, and we talked for about an hour, and he told me, look, uh, we're trying to develop commercial space. We're trying to get off the NASA government grant teat and uh, develop some sort of sustainable space economy. And so that started giving me the picture six years ago of, uh, hey, you know, this is this is where we're heading to. Um, and I still kind of wandered around it for, for a long time and uh, realized, though, with the small sat uh, situation with the, the, the terrible failure rate that the, the small sats have, it's, you know, 40% plus uh, partial and full mission failure. I realized, well, there's an area that I can get into. Um, I shouldn't be designing rocket fuel. <laughs> right? That's not me. But uh, when it comes to manufacturing, yeah. Yeah, I know a lot, and I've got a lot of people uh, working with us who can help. Uh, and on the data science side, we've got one of the best data science people in North America, who's our chief data scientist. Mm -hmm. um, his day job is one of the with one of the uh, big um, law and uh, and fraud prevention companies in in North America. Uh, and he fortunately moved to my hometown here <laughs> for the last ten years, and. Uh, start up a friendship with them. So, you know, I saw, okay, there's an area that I can, that I can fit in. Um, and as a result of doing this interview series, uh, Dr. Rick Fleeter joined us as our technical engineering advisor. And that, with that, <laughs> the last vestiges of any imposter syndrome were kicked to the curb. Um, because now, I, uh, you know, and I've developed such a network. If you gave me $200 million tomorrow, it said, build a space company. I know exactly what I would do. I know who I would hire, right? And uh, so it's, you know, I, I say this to let young people know, look, you can have your dream. You can just work at it, right? Keep at it. Don't Don't give up on it and keep breathing life into it. So... Um, let's talk about a few projects that you've done yourself, um, Chris, that uh, on your LinkedIn profile, I'm going to read this out here. Uh, you describe this, um, you are a multi-award winning documentary filmmaker and executive producer. So an executive producer is the guy who puts up the money, by the way. I studied um, uh, film, <laughs> cool, the film man. industry. I thought maybe I wanted to go into it in my 20s. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I did not. Business, but... Uh, um, yeah. I, I want to know what kind of projects you've worked on, produced, and, and what the, that experience has been like. No, well, thank you. You know, what, what the, straight off the bat, uh, I have to tell you two things. A, it's Michael Potter's fault. I mm. throw him firmly under the bus. My, he's a, <laughs> my great friend and business partner. He's fantastic. He's, he was a gentleman who put together Orphans of Apollo, which is an amazing documentary. If you haven't seen that, please mm. do. And coming out of that, uh, Michael and I were both involved in the early days at Singularity University. Michael was the co-chair of the business school the first year, and I was teaching ethics. Hmm. Uh, and in the middle of all this, there was a, a filmmaker called Matt Rutherford who was, who was already making a documentary about the, about the creation of the university. And we thought, wow, this is great. So we were working with Matt and a guy called John Morris and a few others who kind of came in. Uh, 
uh, one of my cousins, Mr. Hosel, a great guy, great businessman in London, singularity grad himself. And what we did was we, we filmed the creation of a university uh, done by a human. There's only very few human beings in all of history who've ever done that, founded a university more than once. Hmm. Uh, maybe Thomas Jefferson and I just say Peter Diamandis. He created the International Space University, which Michael and I are graduates of. And uh, all of a sudden, he had cameras there. And they had amazing people teaching. So Singularity is like International Space University. Space, Space University does engineering, science, and all this other, other good stuff, right? Whereas the Singularity University does the same approach, but with nanotech, biotech, materials, subsciences, and space and others. So it's called The University. Uh, we won the Raw Science Film Festival and a few others, and it's uh, it's up there on Vimeo. We're actually, if you've been on a couple of flights, you've probably seen it, and we've been out uh, doing another distribution deal at the moment. So that was that was like our opus, that one, the the university. It's fantastic, great cool. background material. And then you've got Poet to the Stars with uh, hmm. Shimon Perez, um, before he passed. That was some of the footage that Matt Rutherford was able to take while making the university. We turned that into a separate. Again, award-winning film, which is fantastic. It's out there uh, for free, Poet to the Stars. There's Shimon Perez. That's what he wanted to be. He never thought of himself as a leader. Hmm. He was a believer in science and more. And then he wanted to be a poet to the stars. His own words. Incredible. We also did... Uh, oh, uh, oh my gosh. You're having a senior moment. This is, I'm just going to have a bit more Gatorade here. Sure. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Okay. No, we just, we just finished it. We just, we just put another... Oh my, so hang on. You can, you can cut this out, I hope. Yeah, yeah. Please yeah, see record it so we can do anything yeah. we want. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Hang on, let me look it up. Yeah. I've done a couple, so I'm trying to pick out the nice spots mm -hmm. we can look at. Hang on, hang on. Immortality or bust. There we go. Sorry. Okay. So we also did uh, Immortality or Bust, uh, which has just got the distribution deal and is about to come out. So the, the preview, the trailer's up online as well. We're about to hit Apple iTunes June 23rd. Absolutely. People go out there, please. It's a fantastic documentary because there we looked at uh, at the last presidential election four years ago. We wanted to look at someone who was running for president. We looked at Zoltan Istvan, who was the hmm. presidential candidate for the transhumanist party. Transhumanism is, uh, well, it's the idea of using technology to extend your lifespan. Hmm. And uh, Jason, I sometimes I wear glasses. Sometimes you're wearing glasses. That's transhumanism. Ben Franklin, transhumanism false teeth, transhumanism. You've had a vaccination, it's transhumanism. And as we get more into biotech and more of the exponential technology revolution, which by the way is what the university is about too, this impact of singularity and exponential tech. And we followed Zoltan as he went around the country you know, as a presidential candidate, uh, look, meeting with some of the life extension people, looking at people hmm. putting you know, the radio chips in their hands all the way through to this argument that says, look, if we spent as much money on actual health and medicine as we do on defense, it would be a different future. Right. Fascinating. Now, we thought he would be the strangest person running for president that year. Oh. <laughs> Obviously, he wasn't. <laughs> so, so there's lots going on that year. And so right. then after that, he, he took a run at uh, governor of California, and he's been out campaigning again. So that documentary is just about to come out, too. Uh, Michael and I were uh, executive producers on The Letter Carriers with Josh Whedon. That's fantastic ghost hmm. story set in Civil War times. So terrifying that even I barely ever watch it because it really is really good. <laughs> and um, gosh, there's been a couple of other smaller, shorter films too, but those are the ones. So if you want to see them, The University, mm -hmm. fantastic. Mm -hmm. Immortality or Bust, also award-winning. And uh, Poets of the Stars. Those are probably my top three. 
Fantastic. No, it's good fun. And we'll Fantastic. And always yeah. follow from Michael Pollard too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Really good stuff. All right. Well, uh, I think that we should have you on for another interview uh, because we've got a lot more that we could discuss. Um, and, and I don't want to go too long on these, right? Uh, oh, know, no, 40, 50 minutes, something Geeks like that. Frontiers. But yes. uh, I know, I, yes, let's mention Geeks Without Frontiers because we did mention that at the, at the start. Uh, tell us a little bit about your involvement with them and, and uh, what you've been able to accomplish uh, alongside them. No, well, thank you. Well, Geeks Without Frontiers, the goal of the organization is to positively impact the lives of a billion people in less than 10 years. Mm. And knock on wood, hopefully we're well on the way. It's a 501c3. It was founded by John Morris, Michael Potter, and myself, David Hartson, and Angie Marr, and our executive director and deputy director. They're doing amazing things. Basically, the idea is we do things that everyone else finds amazingly boring, <laughs> but can actually have an impact and connect people. Because we're all from cable fiber, data warehousing, mm -hmm. cell phone, telecoms, space law, and spectrum. And so things that we've worked on. Uh, so if you cure for insomnia, ready? So mesh network Wi-Fi. We did that with Google, uh, the Tides, uh, Google T Tides Foundation, it became Google.org. And we did that with Microsoft, uh, RIM, Nokia, laptop per child. The idea being that we reduced the cost of putting citywide Wi-Fi whether you're in Kigali or out in the outback in Rwanda, or if you're in Mountain View, we reduced the cost by over 97%. Hmm. Made it all open source, easy to use, easy to adapt. IEEE certified, super security protocols, and it's in use today all over the world. People are using it, they don't even know. And we did this whole thing, and everyone told us it was impossible, which just <laughs> egged on a bit more. And so we did it ahead of schedule and under budget. And it's out there. Uh, we've also then been working with, uh, we have Community Connect with all of the global satellite uh, operators and many countries where we, we actually look at breaking down the regulatory barriers to connectivity. We've got a tsunami of data needs headed towards us. And it's not cable versus satellite versus cell phone versus micro. It's everything we have and everything we have isn't enough. When you look at the Internet of Things, you look at personal data clouds, you look at every single, every couple of years, a new iPhone, and it's exponential growth of data. We need a lot more. And what we found is that everything around the world, a lot of regula regulations, market access, for example, hmm. based upon scarcity. It's, it's really expensive to get a license mm -hmm. in some places. Well, the more expensive it is, the less coverage you get. So you want to you know, reduce that cost. You want to improve your regulations. But when a company comes to you and says, oh, hey, you need to do this, people are quite rightly saying, well, hang on a minute. Who are you? So that's what we did with Geeks. We actually went out and worked with, a, mm. we're still working with a bunch of different countries to say, look, we're completely neutral. If you change your regulations this way, here's what's happened in these other countries. Here's how you do this. Here's how you're going to open your markets. You're going to get more economic, economic activity, more internet coming in. We call it the worldwide well, the WWW, clean water, clean energy, mm. and clean telecoms. It'll boost your economy. It'll boost your education, your healthcare, boost everything you're doing. And all you have to do is change a few regulations. And it's your mm -hmm. choice to change them. Uh, we've been working with the FCC uh, on uh, rural broadband disaster recovery. Uh, we've been leading groups there. And, and thank you to the FCC for allowing us to do that. You know, we, it's a privilege that they let us do that. And we've put in uh, dig once legislation. Mm. Again, see, this is really, to us, this is exciting. Mm -hmm. So for example, mm -hmm. right, you know, you, you, you're building a city, you're building a road, you're doing some maintenance somewhere and every power line, every cable fiber line has to have its own trench dug 
mm-hmm. and it takes forever and it costs a fortune and it destroys the right. roads. There's one international aid organization that has one department that builds roads. There's another department that waits until they finish, digs up the road and puts down power. And there's another department that waits till they're finished, right. digs up the same road and puts down cable fiber. We're like, what are you doing? So we said, dig once, put in a conduit, open source, mm-hmm. like the commons. So every time, put it into, put it into legislation that says anytime anyone's building a road, repairing a road anywhere, you need to do that. And it's, it's going through right now here in the United States, thanks to the FCC, very, very forward thinking people there. Because that reduces the cost of rolling out cable fiber and power by over 90%. And it reduces the time. Once you put that conduit in, it's not, it's not months, weeks, or years. It's days or hours to upgrade mm. cable fiber and power for a town or a city. It's incredible. It's a fundamental shift. Right. And so that's, that's what we do at Geeks Without Frontiers. Oh, we do, <laughs> we're doing an anti-slavery project too. Uh, I can't say how we're doing that, but we're doing that with the State Department. Don't give anything away to the bad guys. Uh, but we're doing that at the moment too. We're using, again, telecoms technology and regulations to track slavery. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fascinating. Human slavery and to put a stop to the damn thing too. Can't believe that's going on in the 21st century. Barbar- barbarous. Not in our world. Right. And yeah, um, regulations <laughs> are important. Uh, I, I have six years of uh, municipal high-level volunteer experience uh, back in my hometown. And I will tell you, back in, say, around 2005, an underground parking stall was about $30,000 to build one underground parking stall. Now, it is North Vancouver. Real estate prices are high there. But I want people to understand uh, the scale of what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Anytime you touch something or dig something, and uh, like you talked about, I used to do... um, like, like go into city hall and get all the permits and that to subdivide property. Say take some, somebody died and you had a property and you needed to divide it into six lots and each needed its own services and that. And yeah, you'd have to hire a flag person every time and the trenching and the retrenching, right? Cutting open the road. It, it, it takes forever. It's ridiculous. It costs an unnecessary amount of money. So what you're talking about uh, makes total sense to me. Uh, and I, I really like hearing about it. So it's not it's not boring to me at all because this is the Lego of how we build our existence. And sure, for most people, they'd rather that just stay off over there, you know, in the background, and they don't have to worry about it. But it affects you. It affects Absolutely. you whether you think it or not. It is, oh, it yeah. is you know, affecting you wherever you are right now. So. And, and, I, and let me I share a secret with you mm-hmm. and your, your viewers. And thank you, viewers, um, about why Geeks Without Frontiers was founded. Hmm. As I don't know about you, but we were fed up. Our entire lives, we'd heard of nothing but problems and people managing a problem and not solving mm-hmm. it. And we realized that we were fortunate to be born where we were born. Mm-hmm. Right? But out there, there were Marie Curies and young Einsteins living in villages all over Central Southern America, Africa, Asia, who didn't have our ability, even here at home in the United States, to get online and do things and get an education, get healthcare. And we said, what's the greatest thing we can do to them or for them? And that's to bring that connectivity to them. So you've got dig once, get the cable fiber in. Head at cable head ends. Then all of a sudden that opens up the Wi-Fi mesh. You've got satellite connectivity for the rural areas and even, even urban areas. So the whole thing about geeks is actually to make sure that no one is left behind. Mm. That we can actually connect over the next and more billion minds to the conversation for humanity. And that's what we're trying to do. But we're doing it in a very unglamorous way, Jason. Mm-hmm. But thank you for understanding. <laughs> 
well, it's it's the impact that matters. That's that's absolutely true. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Chris. Like I said, there there are topics that just for time purposes we weren't able to hit today, but I'd like yep. to have you back uh, in the not-too-distant future uh, to cover again. And uh, maybe we'll have some follow-up questions from people on, on this episode that we'll be able to address as well. Uh, but I think that would be very cool, and I've really enjoyed meeting you. Where is the right place for people to go to learn more about you, uh, connect with Mansat? Uh, you know, what, what's uh, the right place to do that? Oh, no, well, thank you very much, Jason. And actually, yeah, if anyone needs any help with Spectrum, hmm. questions even, you know, we don't charge for questions. If you have any questions on Spectrum, call us or email us or just get in touch through mansat.com, M-A-N-S-A-T.com. But there's also ICESAT through Iceland as well, ICESAT.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Christopher Stott. I'm fine. And we're here to help. Seriously. It's, it's all about getting humanity off this planet and uh, connecting us all. And Jason, thank you for having me today. And everyone, thank you for listening to the sound of my voice. It's, uh, I find it mesmerizing. <laughs> all right. Fantastic. This is Jason Canningham from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released, and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio only uh, side of things. The YouTube channel allows me to have playlists. And so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats. And I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, <laughs> looking for the thing that you want. So I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and very valuable insight into a space company you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.